my name is Axton Betts Hamilton, and I'm an assistant professor of consumer affairs at South Dakota State University, where I focus my research on financial abuse within families, and that includes identity theft perpetrated by family members. And you have actual personal experience when it comes to this, right? Is this why you're interested in it? Yes. Actually, most of my life has been influenced by identity theft. Axton's identity was stolen when she was 11, along with both of her parents. The ripple effects were immense. And as you'll hear, they followed her throughout her life. Unfortunately, this story isn't as unique as you'd hope. Identity theft is a crime that can affect anyone at any time, no matter your age, race, gender, or socioeconomic status. In this season, you'll hear Axton's story, which is emblematic of the larger problem of identity theft in the modern world. We learn how it wreaked havoc into her adult life and how she eventually did what most people never achieve in identity theft she found her perpetrator. This is Illegal Tender, Season 9. I'm Jana Heron. My identity was stolen when I was 11, along with my parents' identities. And back then, it was the early 90s, and no one really knew what identity theft was back then. It, it, it didn't get the attention in popular press like it does today. And there weren't news articles you know, that you could go online to your favorite news source and see information about a data breach and identity theft. It just it didn't happen back then. So I watched my parents deal with identity theft unsuccessfully. And part of the reason they dealt with it unsuccessfully, at least to my understanding, was because back at that time, consumers were not considered victims of identity theft. Rather, financial institutions were considered victims because they were the ones who had been defrauded. They, you know, they were the ones not getting payment. So I went off to college and I was very excited about going off to college because I thought I was going to be able to leave the identity theft behind me. Because again, you know, people at this time didn't really know about identity theft, let alone child identity theft. So no one even thought that my identity could have been stolen as well. And my sophomore year of college, I moved off campus and got my first studio apartment. Was super excited about it because I could bring my two cats from home that I had had since I was age 10 and 12. And I thought, this is great. I'm you know, becoming an independent adult. So I can have the cats. This is wonderful. Um, you know, I'm gonna call the electric company and establish service. And I did, and they told me the day and time that they would be there. Okay, this is great, moving forward, you know, nothing's wrong, you know, life is looking up. And then a few days later, they send me a letter in the mail that says, we need a $100 deposit due to your credit score. And I thought it was because I didn't have a credit score. I was 19 at this point. And at that time, there should have been a couple of student loans in my name, and that was it. You know, my credit report should have been name, address, two entries, done, half a page, no big deal. Right. And 
at 19, I knew enough about credit to know that not having enough of a credit history can be at times just as negative as having a bad credit history. So I thought, oh, that's all, oh, that's all it is. No big deal. And there was a number to call at the bottom of the letter for a copy of my credit report. And I called it out of curiosity because I'd never seen a credit report. You know, what, you know, what does a credit report look like? What does this, <laughs> what does this credit bureau have on me? I want to see this. And about six weeks later, a very large manila envelope arrived in the mail. And it was from the credit bureau. And before opening up the envelope, I thought, wow, credit reports must be really hard to read. They must come with a lot of instructions and disclosures because it was a really thick envelope. And when I opened the envelope, I learned very quickly that credit reports don't come with a lot of instructions and disclosures. They're not very complicated to read at all. But rather, mine was 10 pages long, full of fraudulent credit card entries and associated collection agency entries that dated back to the time that my parents' identities had been stolen in the early early 90s. So it could, it could be assumed that the person responsible for my identity theft was also responsible for theirs. Wow. Well, let's just go back for a second, because you had seen your parents struggle with identity theft. What did that really look like from your point of view as a child? Where what what was what tipped them off? What made it what made them know that they were a victim of identity theft? And how did that make you feel? How did that harm your family? So the first indication that we were victims of identity theft is that our mail was coming up missing. And back at that time, like many rural families still have today, the, our mailbox was an unlocked mailbox out next to the road. So right. in theory, anybody could drive by, open your mailbox and take the mail. And my dad's farm magazines were coming up missing. Bills were coming up missing. My pen pal letters were coming up missing. And that was that was the first indication. And then our phone was turned off. And that was due to the identity theft. At least that's what I was told. At times, our electricity had been turned off. And it, it just seemed in watching my my parents, particularly my mom, try and, and deal with this. No one really seemed to care. No one really seemed to be able to do anything about it. And so, you know, in terms of how it affected me, you know, th think about the the nineties, and you know, today kids have cell phones. You know, everybody's got everybody's got a smartphone. They're texting each other, and that you know, that's how they stay in touch. Back in the nineties, you couldn't do that. You know, cell phones <laughs> were were the size of you know stools. So the, the cell phone that we ended up having was a flip phone that had its own seat in the kitchen, um, and that was because we couldn't get a regular phone. So you know, there was no texting my friends. You know, and cell phones back then were really expensive, so there was no calling my friends and and you know going to hang out with friends. And that was also in part due to the person or persons responsible for 
for my parents' identity theft were doing it so well that they were convinced that it was someone very close to us. So they were convinced it could be an extended relative or a family friend. So we just withdrew from, from people. You know, we didn't have the, you know, these big blowouts where, you know, I think you've stolen my identity and we're never speaking to you again. It wasn't like that at all. It was just withdrawing in as a form of self-protection. And there were, you know, growing up, there were rules like, you know, never open the curtains, never answer the door, even if you know who it is. Never go in the front yard alone because the identity thief could escalate what they're doing to us and snatch you as a teenager. And we lived on a busy highway. I mean, these were the kind of rules that kept being created. And, you know, there kept being additional rules that were added, you know, when I was, you know, 16, 17. So it it was a very stifling environment and it was in many ways not a typical you know preteen teenage experience because of the identity theft were you scared during that time or just you didn't trust people did you how did that make you feel so i definitely didn't trust people but i was also told and taught not not to trust people who had been really close to us. And it was a mix of fear, but also anger because why? You know, I wanted I wanted the answer to that question. Why us? What did we do to deserve this? Who was so angry with us that they would seemingly make it their mission to financially destroy my parents? So there was there was fear and there was anger and a sense of helplessness because it seemed like there was no help available. You know, at least that was the impression that my mom was giving. And it seemed like there was no way out of it. Like the only way out was to go away to college, you know, to physically get out of that environment and try and establish myself independently as an adult. But then the identity theft ended up following me to college. Right. How did it affect your parents, like just their mental well-being? And you say that your, your mom seemed like she took the, the role of trying to figure this out. Why was she um, why was she the one put in charge of that? Oh, so. Uh, so in my parents relationship, my mom was the, the one who went to college. My, my dad didn't. And she kind of had this this role in their relationship as being the smart one, the educated one. And she had a bachelor's degree in finance. So it seemed logical that she would have the knowledge to talk to the police and talk to the banks and talk to the creditors and be able to, to straighten this out, you know, having that, you know, educational background. So she took on that role and were your parents frustrated? How do you think they felt during this entire time? Oh, my dad was frustrated. There were times my dad was enraged by it. And my mom was seemed at times to be angry about it. But it, it, after a while, it, it almost got to the point where it was just a constant thing. You know, it, it became almost normal that we just have to live with this. Oh. And 
you know, I think mom was angry when things like the electricity got turned off or the phone got turned off. Or I remember one time dad and I were home and we were served with a foreclosure notice on the farm. And, you know, I think mom was angry over those things, but just the day to day, it's like, well, we can adapt and, and, and live with it. And, you know, when, when you're not getting help from the places that you say you're, you're trying to get help from, I can see where that comes from because you just get to the point where it's like, all right, there's nothing I can do. I guess I'm just going to have to live with it. Wow. And so then you go to college, you're hoping to start a new chapter. And then you find that this identity thief has followed you. Mm -hmm. What, when you open that credit report and look through it, what, how did you feel? What went through your mind? I thought I would never be allowed to have anything that see my credit score at that time, because I remember they enclosed my credit score with the credit report. It was 380. Wow. And I was so naive. I thought that was good because, you know, being in college and having, you know, not been out of the K-12 system very long, 100 is perfect. So 380 is almost four times perfect. (laughs) No, I really, I legitimately thought that. Right. And, you know, again, that, you know, that, that anger resurfaced of why. What, what did I do to deserve this? You know, if you have, if this identity thief has a problem with my parents, deal with my parents, not me. I didn't do anything. So why, you know, why are you trying to financially destroy me? And really they did because your credit score cannot get much lower than 380. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, at that point, what did you do? Well, the first person I called was mom who said that this is what identity thieves do. They use your credit until they can't use it anymore. Then they move on. And to not take it personally, that no one is out to get you, which is a very different change in tune, you know, compared to what I grew up with. And then I called my dad and his reaction nearly broke the receiver. Um, you know, he was so enraged by it because it's, you know, it's, I think for most parents, you know, I can have kids, but I think for most parents, you know, it's one thing for someone to try and do something to an adult, but then when you do something to one of their kids, you know, that, you know, that, that it's war. <laughs> that, I, that was, that was where my dad was mentally at, at, at that moment. And I also took advantage of, the fact that I was an adult and had an old beater grocery getter type car and that I could go to the police myself. You know, I'm 19, I'm an adult. I can file a police report. And I thought that the best thing to do was to go to the Indiana state police because I was living in Indiana in college. My parents had their identity stolen as Indiana residents, but we were on opposite sides of the state at this point. Uh, well, the, the Indiana state police has jurisdiction over the whole state. Surely they can do something about this. And I drove up 
to the state police post up in Battleground, Indiana, which is north of Lafayette. And I, I was thinking that they would, there would be some sort of response with lights, sirens. I mean, I, I wanted the works. <laughs> and, and, you know, because after, you know, eight years of this, I, you know, I'm, I'm done, you know, let, let's do something, you know, you know, you're not dealing with mom anymore. You're not dealing with dad. You're dealing with me. Let's go. And I, you know, was very animated. I'm sure when I went into the state police post and an officer agreed to take the report and the report said unknown thief, no, unknown suspect opened credit cards in victim's name. And the officer gave me a copy of the report, said I would need it to show to original creditors and collection agencies and wished me luck. And that was the end of the involvement from the Indiana State Police. And actually at that time, you know, based on what I know now as a professional, that's actually a good response from the police because there are some reports out there that uh, different law enforcement agencies weren't taking identity theft reports. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you got at least listened to, but did anything happen after that? I, what, what that trip battleground gave me, was the document that I needed to start the process of contacting original creditors and collection agencies. And I learned very quickly, collection agencies don't care if you're a victim of identity theft, but the original creditors are more likely to listen. So is that what you ended up doing? Just going down that credit report? I did. I did. So again, being 19 and naive, and maybe a little idealistic. I I called the first original creditor on the credit report. And the credit card was established when I was 13. And of course, I can prove my age, you know. Right. And so I called the original creditor and talked to the customer service representative with police report in hand. And the customer service representative said, you're not a victim of identity theft. And I think my next snap, you know, going backwards, like, what, what did you just say to me? <laughs> and she said, you're not a victim of identity theft because someone made two payments on this card before they quit. And identity thieves don't do that. This is your card. It's your name. It's your address. It's your social security number. But it was opened when you were 13. <laughs> right. And actually, that is how some of the credit cards were removed from my credit report. I actually was sued by, uh, not not that credit card uh, issuer, but another credit card issuer tried to sue me for non-payment back in 2006. And how that case was dismissed was because I was underage. I, and it was not because it was identity theft. It was because I could not be held to the terms of the credit agreement because I was not 18. Right. So it was, okay. it was dismissed for the wrong reason. It's like, no, this is identity theft. No, you know, say that, but no. So, you know, I, you know, through this experience, I, you know, one of the things I, I've learned is that justice is, is really hard to achieve. 
So were you able to get through all of those and cl clean up your your credit history? And how long of your life did that take? Oh, so you know, it it, it turned into a game of whack a mole. It really, it really did. So what happens when an account is sold from the original creditor to a collection agency is that if that first collection agency can't collect, they'll resell the debt. And then an entry from that collection agency shows up on your credit report and oh. then they'll resell the debt and then it'll pop up again. And so these old debts that I thought were cleared resurfaced because the debt had been resold, you know, multiple times over, probably by that point for pennies on the dollar. So my credit report didn't clear a fraudulent entries until 2009. I started the process in 2001. Oh my goodness. And how, mm -hmm. how did that disrupt your adult life? I mean, your college life, your, you know, after you graduated, so I oh, disrupted my life in so many ways. My first, so my first credit card. So, you know, going through this process I, and how difficult it was and how, you know, how many people didn't really listen, you know, to what I was telling them about the identity theft. I decided that I had to start building good credit while trying to get rid of the bad credit, the credit that wasn't mine. And back in the early 2000s, college students were inundated with credit card applications, mm -hmm. except me, you know, because no one wanted to give someone a credit card who had a credit score of 380. Well, I finally received my first pre-approved credit card offer when I was 23. And I went ahead and filled out the application knowing the terms would not be good. I didn't realize they would be horrible. Um, that credit card had a $300 limit, a $69 annual fee that they billed me for before they sent the credit card and a 29.99% APR. Wow. And then a month later, the car that I was driving gave up and I needed a car loan. And I was literally on foot in, in the little town that I was living in by that point, little town in Illinois. I was literally on foot car shopping in this little town of 3,600 people with two car dealerships and both car dealerships said, we'd be happy to finance you, but you need a co-signer. And I said, my parents have had identity theft happen to them worse than I have. There is no co-signer. There is no mm -hmm. other option. And by this point, my credit score was 520 because some things had, had fallen off. And, you know, I, I had the, that new line of credit with, with the $300 credit card. So it wasn't, the worst, but you know, I was, was still subprime, and I, I went back to work. I worked in I worked in the city hall building, and yeah, here I am, twenty three years old, and all I'm going to do. <laughs> and I, again, I feel like all these doors are slammed in my face, and I have no options. And I'm sitting at my desk, just you know, probably whining about it. Actually, my coworkers. And the mayor walks in and, um, you know, sits down at his desk. Here's what we're talking about. And ends up getting up and throwing his keys at me. <laughs> I said, what are you doing? And he said, I hear you need to go car shopping. 
And I said, well, I do. But again, I was raised that you don't accept offers of, you know, charity from people. Mm -hmm. And and that felt like charity. No, 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 I'm fine. And then my coworkers were saying, no, you have no other option. Take the keys. And so the mayor gave me his car for the weekend and I went car shopping. And I set out at seven o'clock on a Saturday morning, drove to Springfield, Illinois, couldn't get financed anywhere in Springfield, drove over to Decatur, Illinois, to a tent sale where they were able to give me special financing. Okay. And I special does not mean good. I, I learned that. <laughs> and my first car loan on a five-year-old used car was at 18.23%, which is like putting a used car on a credit card. Wow. But I had a car. I was able to do it. Uh, but, you know, it was just such an ordeal. You know, I think the average person who who's in that situation, you know, someone in their early 20s, if they don't have enough of a credit history, they would go with their parent or grandparent and, you know, have them co-sign and you get a car loan. I didn't have that option and ended up spending an entire day driving from city to city in Illinois, trying practically, well, I won't say practically, begging for someone to finance me on a car loan. And that car loan, the best that I could get was 18.23%. Wow. So that, yeah, that makes just the everyday things that you need to do that much harder. Right. And then another dimension of identity theft that really impacted just establishing myself as an adult is every time I moved somewhere, I had to pay a security deposit for utility services because of my credit score. And that continued until... So after I finished graduate school. Oh, wow. Have you kept track of like how much more money you've had to spend because of this? Oh, no. If I did, it would probably make me really angry. But I would say it's it's in easily in the tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. So this followed you and you said you finally got it cleared up. Two thousand. Nine. 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 That's a lot of your life doing that. Right. And see, this this all started back in 1993. So my credit report that I didn't even know I had until 2001 was damaged really from 1993 to 2009. So 16 years. Was there ever a time where you're just like, I give up, I just don't want to do it anymore? Yeah, you know, there were times that I, I felt that way, but it, it also felt like there was no other choice but to keep going because this, you know, this is my life. I'm a young adult and I have to keep fighting this or I will never have the things that many people take for granted, like a car, a house, which I still don't have, by the way, I still rent. You know, the, you know, the ability to rent a car or a hotel room because you need a credit card and a, you know, $300 limit rent a hotel doesn't go very far. You know, the, just these everyday things that many people take for granted. If I wanted to do that to be a successful 
professional college educated adult, I had to keep going. I had to keep fighting the good fight. And along the way, as an outgrowth of my frustrations with my own experience, I um, did my master's research on identity theft. And at that time, I was focused on how people perceive identity theft and what they were doing to protect themselves from becoming victims. And I went on to do my doctoral dissertation on child identity theft victimization. And I did that as a way to educate myself, Mm -hmm. help myself in my own situation. I also wanted to help future victims because I thought if there's me out there who didn't know this was happening to them, surely there are others. And also along the way, I hoped that I would learn something through the process that would lead me to to identifying the person or persons responsible for the identity for the identity thefts that occurred um, to me and my mom and my dad. In our next episode, Axton finds her thief. Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance from our homes in New York City. This season was written and hosted by me, Jana Heron. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Axton Betts Hamilton for sharing your story. And thank you to the Identity Theft Resource Center for connecting us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.